turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I am often intrigued by genealogies. As a matter of fact, uh, over the last few weeks in particular, I would see these commercials about how you could study your own genealogy. And I would tell Leslie every time it came on, I want to do that sometime. I would love to find out more about my family. I'd like to know more about where I came from. And then Leslie reminded me, there may be things I don't want to know. And she's probably right. A few months ago, I was at home and around that Tupelo area. My dad and I had gone out to the cemeteries. I don't know why, but sometimes when you get a little older, you begin doing those kinds of things. And now that I've reached my seniority in life, I was going out with him and we were looking at different uh, graves and gravesides, and um, we we began talking about the family, and we came across this one. It was my uncle Harold. He was a great uncle of mine, and I'd always known that he just had one solitary headstone there. There was nobody buried by him or anything. So I asked my dad. I said, "Dad, I said." Um, was Uncle Harold, was he not married? I mean, why is he buried here by himself? I mean, there, there was nobody else that was in his life. He said, oh, yeah, he was married. I said, he was. Why is his wife not buried by him? She said, he said, well, he actually shot her. That's the reason that she's not. <laughs> he what? Oh, yeah, you know that. You know, you know. years ago, he, he shot her, and they lived right across the street from us. They were a nice couple, but, you know, they just had a... Th- and, and anyway, we paid... The, well, your grandfather paid the judge off, and thus, uh, I said, Dad, what are you telling me? I mean, I don't want to know all of this kind of stuff. He said, Son, you ask, so you got to be willing to know if you ask what happened. So let me say, sometimes there are things in your genealogy you probably don't want to know. There are probably people or branches you'd like to just kind of cut off sometimes, right? And yet, genealogies, especially in the Scripture, they speak about a person's origin. In the New Testament time, even during the Old Testament time, they were very meticulous. The Jews were very meticulous in keeping up with genealogies for three reasons. One, they wanted to maintain the purity of who they were. And they wanted to prove that purity. Remember, there had been those warring nations who had come. And you will also recall that the northern kingdom itself had been destroyed by Assyria and had been taken into to bondage in many ways. And, and that bloodline was broken down. The culture itself was broken down. So those who considered themselves from that southern kingdom, the Jews, they would try to be meticulous in keeping records for their purity to maintain and to demonstrate their purity. Also for the priesthood, because these priests had to come from certain lineages and lines, so they wanted to make sure that their priesthood was what it was supposed to be, and they would keep up with these genealogies. And third, they would keep up with these genealogies because of a person, this person that they would call the Messiah, the Christ. They wanted to make sure that he was going to come from the, the appropriate lineage, that which had been prophesied about. So they, were, they wanted to make sure that they gave careful attention to their records. 
to their genealogy, to maintain their purity, to make sure that the priesthood was what it should be, and to look forward to that person of the Messiah, the Christ. When you come to Matthew chapter 1, that latter purpose, keeping up with the genealogy to demonstrate the Messiahship of an individual, that purpose is clearly evident. Notice beginning in verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Clearly, the purpose of the genealogy and its inclusion here is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. There are two genealogies in the New Testament that point toward his Messiahship in Matthew and in Luke. In Matthew, we see it from Joseph's lineage, which usually it is through the father that you demonstrate the, the line. But in Luke, you see Mary's lineage given. Here, you see it begin with Abraham. Why? Because Matthew was speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience. And he wanted to make sure that he was identifying Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, with the appropriate lineage from Abraham. Over in Luke, you'll see that he begins actually with Adam, demonstrating the universal salvation of this Christ. But here, we have Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And as you continue down through this, you'll note different characters, different individuals that enter into his family. I want you to note in particular in these first few verses, the women that are mentioned in this genealogy. Notice verse 2, it says, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez, and Zerubbabel Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. I ought to get some kind of applause on that or something, just reading through. Some of you skip those verses when you get to your uh, reading or so, daily reading through the year. But notice in this that there are women who are mentioned. Now, this is strange because usually when you look at a lineage, especially in this time, in the New Testament day, you are tracking the lineage through the father. This is a patriarchal society. You're looking at the father and you're noting how they play into the family. And yet here, note the women who are mentioned. I think it says something, even in this genealogy, about God's grace and God's work as he was providing the Christ for his people. Notice first in verse 3 it says... Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. Now, do you remember the story of Tamar and Judah? It's found in Genesis 38. Probably none of you in this place, none of you, have ever named your child Tamar. Because as you read that story, you see the... 
You see the insanity of it. You see the despicable acts that take place. Genesis 38 talks about this guy named Judah. And Judah, we've heard his name before, right? Especially around this time because Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, was going to come from the tribe of Judah. So we've heard of Judah's name. Judah had been married, and he married a Canaanite, which was outside of his Jewish custom. And he gave birth, or she gave birth, to different sons, three sons in particular. His oldest son married Tamar. And here you had this daughter-in-law come into the family. But the scripture says something very interesting here. It says that this boy, Ur, the son of Judah, had done wickedness in his life. And because of that, his life was forfeited. Now, there was a custom in ancient Israel. It was called leveret marriage. You've heard of this before? Leveret marriage. Basically, what it meant was that if your brother passes away and you're not married, then you will take his wife so that you will continue his name. You will have children, but they will actually bear the name of your brother. Aren't you proud we made some advancements? (laughs) But it was expected that the second son would come and marry Tamar. And he does. And yet, because of his disobedience, he also forfeits his life. Well, you can imagine by this time, Judah's a little concerned, and the youngest son, well, he's very young. And, and he says, Tamar, just you, you wait, and when my son gets old enough, then I guess I'll marry him off to you as well. And yet it seems that day never comes. Never does Judah fulfill his promise. There's a sequence of events. I'm not going into all of them, but where Tamar actually plays the prostitute to seduce her father-in-law. And as people begin to whisper later on about her being pregnant, he is confronted with the reality that he is the father. And thus you have the story of Tamar. Quite an interesting woman to include in your genealogy, huh? I mentioned to you earlier, there are probably those you would like to forget. And especially for the sensitivity of the Jewish people, you would think this would be one you would just kind of leave out. Why would you want to put the woman who played the prostitute into the genealogy? Why would you put Tamar? Well, continue looking through this cast of characters and it may become more evident to you. It says in verse 5 that Simone begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, that's another name that probably comes to the attention of you who are biblical scholars. You remember Rahab? This fine, upstanding, wonderful Well, if you remember, 
that as Joshua was leading the conquest, as he was leading the people of Israel into their land, that he sent in spies to Jericho. Remember this? Joshua chapter 2. He sent in spies to kind of see what was going on. And when the spies, when they were in danger, it was this Rahab, this prostitute, who actually extended to them security and safety and who directed the men, the officials of that city elsewhere. And do you remember what she said to them? She, she, looked, she looked at those spies and she, she said to them something to the effect, we, even though we are Canaanites, we know that your God is up to something. Because we've heard the stories about how you defeated the Egyptians. We've heard the story about the crossing of the Red Sea. We've heard about it and we know that your God is powerful and that we've been delivered into your hands. What an awesome statement. What an awesome statement of faith. Because remember, faith is not just the privilege of the morally upright. Faith is available to anybody who is willing to humble themselves before the God of the universe. You don't fix yourself up before you come to God. You allow God to work on you after you've come to him in faith and in trust. And you remember the story that because of her protection of those spies and Joshua's favor and that she survived when all others perished. And somehow that Canaanite woman, that prostitute made it into the lineage of Jesus Christ. And she is specifically mentioned as the Holy Spirit directs Matthew to write. Well, it gets a little better maybe. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. You've heard of Ruth? And Ruth is one of those names you can actually still use today. My grandmother was Ruth Elaine. She couldn't stand Ruth, but that's what her name was. It's not marred in all of the difficulty of the other names. And yet, when you read that book that bears her name, you will see how amazing it is that she even came into the family of God. Because remember, it was Ruth and her mother-in-law and her sister-in-law who all experienced tremendous tragedy of losing their husbands. They experienced a time of famine. They experienced great difficulty. And yet she demonstrated her devotion To her mother-in-law. That should count for something, shouldn't it? She demonstrated her devotion to her mother-in-law and came back to the little hamlet, the little town of Bethlehem. Now remember, she wasn't Jewish. If you look at the purity of 
of her genealogy, you would find that it was wrapped in Moabite ancestry. Moabite. At one time, if you will read the Old Testament, at one time, the, Moabite, the Moabites could not even enter into the very sanctuary of God. They could not enter into the, with the people of God. They were to be alienated and isolated from the people of God. And yet, here's a Moabite who comes into the family of God. And if you read the story, may we say that some of her actions are a little bit risque, a little bit lying down at the feet of your boyfriend. That's a little bit risque, especially in the time of Ruth and Naomi. So here you have another woman, not marred by all of the sexual misconduct that the others, but at the same time, still you see how in the world she would be named in such a lineage. Well, verse 6, we continue to see that the children are born. And Ruth has a great-grandson named David. And it says, Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Her name is not even mentioned. But rather... Her relationship to her husband is the way in which she is defined. The wife of Uriah. Again, her name is? I see a Bathsheba. Bathsheba, again, that is a name that escapes most of us when we start naming our children. There's just certain names you stay away from, right? Never even comes to mind. Why? Because, again, of the history and of the actions. She's defined as the wife of Uriah. The story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Describes this evening in which David was just walking on the roof in the springtime. He had abandoned his own responsibility of being out at war and he was just walking along. I went back and read that passage again this week and it, 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 it reads as this narrative as though it, is, it just so happened. It just so happened that he was walking along. It was just so happened that he looked down. It wasn't necessarily anything I think David had planned in his heart. But he allowed lust to consume him and he sent for Bathsheba and they committed adultery. Now think of this again. Here is a woman that commits adultery. And may I even suggest the possibility at least that she was an accessory to murder. What do you mean by that, Brother Reggie? Well, you remember David says, I'm going to cover this thing up. I mean, after she has conceived a child... 
he decides he has to cover this up. So what he does is he has his men, he has Joab and his men to put Uriah in the heat of the battle so that Uriah is killed. Now, I can't prove to you, Bathsheba knew what was going to happen, but I believe she might have had some inkling. Even her silence had complicated the issue. So here you have, here you have a woman who was an adulteress and one who was an accessory possibly to murder, named. I've cheered you up this morning, haven't I? Exactly what you were thinking about the Sunday after Christmas and getting started on a new year. I mean, you look at these and you think, oh, the failures and all the... I mean, but again, I say to you that this genealogy, as the Holy Spirit speaks to Matthew to record this genealogy of Jesus, yes, to point to Jesus as the Messiah, he includes here these four women, which seems so strange and so unique in a way. Why would he do such? May I offer to you two suggestions this morning? One, it reminds us that God's grace is extended to the most unlikely, to the most unlikely of individuals, to the most unlikely of people. God's grace is. And see, this is where I find it exciting. This is where I find it So wonderful. To know that God's grace can be extended to the most unlikely of individuals. Now, I've talked to you about the women who are here. And some of you ladies are looking at me like, can we talk about some of the guys? Well, I mentioned to you Judah. He wasn't quite upright. And you read through and David, he wasn't. You recognize that whether they were men or they were women, They found themselves in God's family simply by his grace. It wasn't because they were so great. It wasn't because they were so morally upright. It was because God in his graciousness had extended mercy to them. And sometimes the most unlikely, he may take individuals that have a background of prostitution. He may take individuals that don't fit into the family of God so perfectly like a Canaanite or a Moabite and yet God will take them and use them and bring them into his family see I think that's tremendous I think it's awesome because that means that even today God extends his grace to the most unlikely doesn't matter what our background is we can be a part of his family It doesn't matter about our past failures. God can adopt us into his family. It doesn't matter how time and time again we can speak of how we've let God down. God has a way of taking lives of brokenness, lives of failure, and redeeming them for his glory and for his honor. 
You don't believe it? Just look around. Just look around. Now, I know a lot of us, again, like to take a lot pride in our genealogies or perhaps our degrees or perhaps in our accomplishments. We like to do that. May I say to you, I'm one of the chief sinners in that area. I love to do those things. But I'm reminded that when it comes down to it, I was nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. All of the accomplishments, all of the other things in life, I am thankful for, I'm grateful for what God allows us to do and and see, but it was only through God's gracious act of salvation that I received forgiveness. As I mentioned, it's only through God coming in the form of a man, living a perfect life and dying a sufficient death and being raised that third day in power and in glory, the only way I could be saved and you could be saved. And it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've been through or what's been in our past. But we can be a part of the family of God think that's tremendous so first i say to you that god's grace is expressed even in the most unlikely of individuals and it is given to the most unlikely of individuals but get this second suggestion to you god uses the most unlikely individuals to fulfill his will the most unlikely of individuals to fulfill his will. Well, we shouldn't be totally surprised by that because, again, we've read the Old Testament and we've seen how God's worked in the past of choosing individuals, unlikely individuals, humble individuals to accomplish his purpose and his plan. And here he is, choosing people like Tamar, choosing people like Rahab, choosing individuals like Ruth, choosing individuals like Bathsheba, and including them in the family in such a way that he brings forth his son, the Lord Jesus. I mean, remember God always had a plan and purpose. You remember I said that? Shake your head like this. You only got like five minutes. You don't want me to re-preach that. Okay, so just shake your head like this. God always had a plan. He always had a purpose. He was always working progressively toward his salvation, toward his Christ, toward his Messiah. It wasn't just like after 400 silent years, he said, okay, I'm going to do something. God always was about his business of work. He always was about the plan. And what he did is he used men and women, and sometimes the most unlikely of individuals, to fulfill his purpose. Even Mary, verse 16 said, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. May I suggest to you that Mary was one of the most unlikely candidates 
to be chosen. Just a young, humble individual. Remember her song to the Lord? Remember her worship to the Lord? Even in that, she recognized how she never deserved this. And yet God chose Mary. And for months and for years, she would be talked about in scandalous terms among the rest of the families of the community. Now, we know better. We know that she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we do know that questions of legitimacy will dog Jesus the rest of his life. And Mary will be taken into account. And Joseph himself will be spoken in terms of scandal. And most likely, Mary will be compared to those women of old like Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba. She will be talked about in those communities just like those women. Again, we know better because her life was not scandalous. It was set apart. We know better. And yet still, God used the unlikely Mary to fulfill his purpose. In bringing forth the Christ. See, that's encouraging to me. Because if God has used the most unlikely before to fulfill his purpose, he can still do that today. As a matter of fact, I think he chooses the most unlikely so that his power. And his glory will be clearly seen. He'll choose those that he can change. He can transform. He'll choose those that will receive, where he will receive the most glory. For what will be accomplished. May I remind you again. You and I. We truly have been among the most unlikely. Because if you read the salvation story, you'll recognize that we were those who were looking in, not those who were looking out. What do I mean by that? Well, most all of us in here, if we track track our genealogies, got to tell you, Gentile, Gentile, Gentile. We were not necessarily in that nation of Israel. And yet what God did is he decided to work through his nation and his people and work through this Christ so that he could provide salvation to us all and so that he could use us, even Gentiles, the most unlikely of candidates, to make a difference for his kingdom. And he still does that. Because he is the God of power and magnificence and glory. That is the God that we serve. And that is a God that we celebrate even during this season. He chooses the most unlikely to demonstrate his grace. He chooses the most unlikely to fulfill his purpose. What a wonderful 
message for us during this time of year. And may I say this morning, you've come here, some of you are family members, you're just visiting, you, you had not necessarily um, thought about, hey, this is the day I'm going to deal with this in my life, but yet God has you here for a purpose and a reason. He wants to confront you and he wants to encourage you. Some of you, you, you're here every Sunday. But this week you came in and you thought, well, it's just kind of one of those days, kind of rainy, kind of, you know, it's just, well, it's just a day. Let's do this and we'll get out. And, we'll, and yet God has you here right now to speak to you and to confront you in this. And maybe today it's an individual that's never accepted salvation. And you cannot get over the background. You can't get over the past. You can't get over the things you've done. I've had people say, Brother Reggie, why in the world would God forgive me for those things? And yet God has been so willing to forgive and so willing to make a difference in your life that he sent his one and only son for you. To say that I love you. And to say that I love you this much. Through the cross of Calvary. And today you can come into the family of God. No matter what your background is. You can come into the family of God. If you trust him. And believe in him. Have faith. Maybe there's some of us in this place that just say. Uh, Brother Reggie. I just, I'm not worthy to be used for his will and his purpose and his kingdom. That's a good step. A good step of recognizing you're not worthy. Because the reality is, none of us are. And yet as we come and bow in humility before him, he can take our lives and use them for something greater than we could ever imagine. Today in this place, I believe God is speaking. I think he's speaking to that one which is lost come and be saved I think he's speaking to those of us who feel unworthy to come and submit our lives and fulfill that will and purpose would you hear God's word would you respond would you surrender your life to him because if God can use these men and women listed in the genealogy God can use you to make a difference for the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you this morning. I praise you. God, we give thanks to you that you sent your one and only son for us. And that, God, you used all of these different individuals and these different events and these different circumstances. God, you used them to bring forth the Messiah. Not by happenstance, not by accident, but by your purposeful will. And, God, thank you for looking at us. And, Lord, loving us while we were still sinners. 
And God, this morning in this place, there's some of us that we have baggage that we cannot lay down. We have things in the past that we cannot move forward with. God, I pray that today we would be willing to surrender everything to you. That you would save that one which is lost. God, for those of us that you want to use in a mighty way, Father, I pray that you would allow us to submit and bow before you and see your work accomplished. God, speak to us now. Demonstrate your power and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?